Welcome to P3 Radio. Oh my God. Do the lesson. We're coming for you, baby. <laughs> and uh, if you're going to call me back tomorrow or whatever, I'll give you. You better believe I took my turn with this. <laughs> what? Cool story, bro. PG3 Radio. Nope. Here's your host, Josh Friday. I wonder when Fritz is coming up sometime. Yeah, all three of his sons will real soon. Richard Rutherford. I don't know. Is this making any sense to anybody out there? It's showtime! It's showtime! It's showtime! Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to P3 Radio. I'm Richard Mulliken, joined by my co-host and best friend, Josh Briley. Say hey, Josh. How's it going, everybody? It's a big day today, Richard. Yes, Josh, it is a big day. We have from SiriusXM 103's Weird Medicine, Dr. Steve. He's also on the Riotcast Network. Yeah, and we were honored and thrilled to have him on our show. We hope that you enjoy this interview as much as we did doing it. He's a super cool guy, extremely patient, and he was very down-to-earth and easy to talk to. Well, that interview will be up right now after this commercial break from the Wine of the Month Club. When you go shopping for wine, do you look at the labels? Do you stare at the price and wonder if the wine is worth the expensive tag? Well, stop it, because Wine of the Month Club has you covered. Every month, Wine of the Month Club is going to send you two bottles of high-quality wine right to your front door. And what better way to say I'm thinking of you than a subscription to the original Wine of the Month Club for a friend or a sweetheart. Each month, they'll be reminded of your thoughtfulness and will receive the monthly wine letter and newsletter binder. Recipes, wine knowledge, and great wine, and the opportunity to get more of their favorites is at hand. Give with confidence and joy knowing that you're a part of the original Wine of the Month. By the way, there are no dues, no fees, no hidden charges. Cancel anytime with no obligation. Just pay no more than $23.96 plus shipping for two great bottles of wine. Go there now. Sign up by visiting our link tinyurl.com slash p3wine. That's tinyurl.com slash p3wine. The Wine of the Month Club. The original wine club since 19 19- 72. Right now on the P3 Hotline, we are honored to have the host of Weird Medicine, Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve, thanks for being on P3 Radio today. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> we get a clap. That's, That's awesome. <laughs> well, you know, flipping through the yeah, channels, I'm glad to be here. we really appreciate you being here. This is a huge honor for me. I found your show while I was flipping through channels on SiriusXM about seven, eight years ago. And I used oh. to go to wrestling shows. And on Saturday nights, I would be making my towns, making my drives and everything. And I started listening to this this medical show that was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And I was cracking up. <laughs> and before I knew it, I got to my town. And I'm like, man, this guy's really cool. And he's from my home state. That's that's pretty cool. You know, and I'm a huge fan. So, like I said, if I start marking out too much, just let me know. No, it's totally fine. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's cool about the wrestling. I, I don't. Are you aware that I... Uh, worked for um, WRAL-TV back in the 70s and uh, was a cameraman for Wide World of Wrestling and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Well, actually, I didn't know if that was a coincidence. Yeah, that's that's actually a question because I saw that. And uh, I know we were we were talking on Twitter back and forth, and I was like, if you can talk to us, do an interview, I, we'll try to do something different with you. We'll try not to do a lot of medical questions. We'll talk other things. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I'll but, like uh, that. but yeah. We, I don't we, have to choose my words so carefully. Yeah, <laughs> we, we no, might have. Not I mean, it's you know when I'm when I'm giving medical advice to people, which I don't really give advice. That's that puts me in sort of a weird medical legal 
thing, but we answer questions. But I try not to uh, get people killed, and I try not to give them um, any kind of uh, advice. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the show, we say, look, you know, you don't know who we are. We, you don't know if we have medical uh, licenses or not. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt and don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking over with your, you know, healthcare provider. But choose my words carefully. And so I've got this uh, uh, reputation of having these vocal crutches just by, you know, Jim Norton on Opium or uh, Jim and Sam show, you know, right. if he starts doing my, my voice, he starts out with, ah, and right. the, the reason those are there is because I'm making sure that I'm not saying something that's going to either get me in trouble or kill somebody. Right. So if we could talk about anything other than medicine, <laughs> of course, I'll answer any medical questions, you know. Right. Well, uh, you know, I wonder if that's a Southern thing, because I'm from Tennessee. We're from like an hour away from Memphis. I, I edit this show. This doesn't go out live. And when I edit it, I take down like maybe about three to five minutes in a 30 minute span of me just going. Um, um, oh, you do? Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. I did that when I first started and I finally just said, F it. Can yeah. I curse on this show? Oh, I mean, yeah, you definitely. Guys- definitely. I said, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I started listening in about 2009, 2010, so I don't know the backstory. How did you get connected with ONA? Well, that is an interesting – well, I don't know how interesting it is. It's interesting to me because it is kind of a torturous path. <laughs> what, what happened was those guys, when they first started in 2004, and I was one of the first people that – I mean, I signed up the day I heard about it. Uh, because back then, all they had uh, was some radio station in Orlando, and those were the morning shows that were on Sirius X- or XM Radio at the time. And it was okay, but it just kind of sucked, and I kept hoping that Howard Stern would come over, and I kept calling him and saying, you know, I, I'll buy more radios if you get Howard Stern. I never heard of Opie and Anthony, and then they did about a month-long promo with it was an interview with them on one of the channels and uh they started playing some old bits and stuff like that and i said i've got to have this so i signed up and at that time they were really interested in promoting it because you had to pay extra money to listen to them so when they first started there might have been ten thousand people total listening maybe more than that but not that much more because you had to pay this extra four bucks right, right to get it and people didn't know what it was so they were playing to just super fans and you know back when you're on free radio in new york half of the fun is all the crazies that call in <clears throat> so anyway they were really interested in promoting the show and getting out there so they were on aol instant messenger for whatever reason <laughs> And I ran into Jim Norton on AOL Instant Messenger. Uh, no idea how, I, I guess that they must have said something about it on the show. Right. And so I, I, I got on there and I ran into him and uh, we just, you know, I just said, hey, I love the show. And he saw my nom de internet. I guess it was just hospice doc or Dr. Steve or something like that. Right. He said, hey, are you a real doctor? And I said, sure. He said, well, I've got this weird lump on my scrotum. And I was wondering <laughs> if we could talk about it for a minute. So we talked about it for a minute. The next day I'm listening. He says, yeah, I was talking to this doctor in Tennessee. And he told me about the uh, uh, the lump on my scrotum. And Anthony said, yeah, because we all know all the best doctors are in Tennessee. And oh, I wonderful. that pissed me off. I sent, I faxed in my CV, and I am, unbeknownst to a lot of people, which is probably a good thing, I'm the uh, uh, editor-in-chief of a national medical journal. I've got over 100 publications in the national, you know, in the, well, international medical literature. And uh, so I'm no dumbass <laughs> doctor. See, and when I sent that, they thought it was funny that I sent in my CV, and they, I guess they were suitably impressed. So they started calling me. 
behind the scenes, I was never on the air back in the in those days. Um, they would call me and say things like, "Erock wants to do the cinnamon challenge. Is it safe?" And I would say, <laughs> "No, it's not safe." And then they would do it anyway. Right. You know. So. <laughs> so, uh, and then when Ron and Fez got got there, I started uh, sending them gifts and stuff because I just thought they were awesome, weren't getting the credit that they deserved. And so I kind of got hooked up yeah. with Ron and Fez show. So I was across the channel because back then, if you remember, it was just Opie and Anthony and Ron and Fez, and they would just play repeats of all those shows. And uh, sometime around 2005, Opie said, hey, we've got some openings on the channel. If the listeners have any ideas about a show, we would be interested in uh, uh, taking um, uh, your ideas. So I immediately emailed Steve Carlisi, who was the executive producer at the time. And he was a really nice guy. He would always answer my emails. I said, I got this idea. We'll call it, I don't know, weird medicine. And I'll talk, uh, you know, I'll tell horrible medical stories and I'll answer questions from your obviously healthcare limited audience. Because at the time, you know, when you go to an Opie and Anthony event, it was all these 500 pound dudes and right. stuff. And, um, and I said, it'd be fun. And he emailed me right back, said, I love this idea. I'm going to take it to him. We'll see, run it up the flagpole, see what happens. And, uh, within a week they told me, uh, I had a slot on Saturday night for a one time, just try it out 90 minutes. And that was during what was back then called the Saturday night virus. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever told this story in its entirety before. So they uh, uh, had the Saturday night virus thing. It was a 90-minute slot, and it rotated. There were different things. And I went to New York with my partner, P.A. John, and we practiced, practiced, practiced. I had 25 different topics that we were going to talk about to make sure, and I was worried that we didn't have enough. And we were just freaking out because this was a big deal. And that Friday, we went and sat on the bleachers. I just thought that they would uh, say, hey, you know, Dr. Steve's doing a thing Saturday night. And my feeling was that they invited us to do this because either it would suck so bad that they could make fun of us <laughs> yeah. or it would be great and they could take credit for it. Either way, it was a win-win for right. them. So we're sitting out there on the bleachers and they say, next, Dr. Steve's going to be on the show and uh, answer your medical question. I'm like, what? So they called me in on the Friday show to just sit there and I was freaking the F out because to me, these guys, now they're my friends, but at the right. time they were like radio gods to me. Right. I listened every day. I was a huge super fan. It was, you know, just so, so much fun. And back then it was just this joy of comedy and, uh, you know, they, they would dissect when they would bomb in the studio, they would dissect why those jokes didn't work. And, you know, it was like comedy college kind of. Right. Just the sense of humors that all those guys had. And right. even Opie, for as much stuff as Opie takes, you know, I loved Opie on the show, too. Opie, it was made, just that, Opie made me laugh every day. Yeah, exactly. And Opie, Opie's the reason that I have my show. I had it in the first place. He's the one that greenlit it. Right. And he's the one that defended me against Tim Sabian when Tim Sabian tried to uh, cleanse the channel right. of all the uh, older stuff. And uh, he stood up for me. So I will never crap on Opie. I know that he's, you know, cannon fodder for a lot of people. And uh, but uh, I've seen him work and he was a consummate professional. He loves radio. And well, anyway, so right. I'll catch hell just for saying, saying <laughs> nice things. <laughs> not, not for me, man, because like I said, I was a yep. huge Opie and Anthony fan and Jim Norton. And even when they had beef, it was just, you know, I still supported Opie and Anthony. I subscribed to Anthony's sure. channel. I listened to Opie and Jim every morning. I listened to Opie in the afternoons when they moved him there. I I yep. thought they all brought a different 
perspective to that show that when you joined it all together, it just made this something special there. Yeah, the chemistry that they had was something that just doesn't happen very often. Same thing with Howard and Robin and Fred. It just doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it's magic. And it was, the you know, the original Opie and Anthony show was just so much fun. But, um, but anyway, so uh, they, yeah, they called me in and I got to sit down and I got a couple of laughs and then they had me do a, a prostate exam on Pat Duffy on the air. And I was freaking out. I thought somehow the American Medical Association was going to come after me and all this stuff, but there was no way I could say no. They were like, well, you had one of those doctors that does prostate exams. Say, sure, I do it every day. And uh, they said, you want to do one on the air? I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I kind of need an office setting. They said, oh, we're just a bunch of guys just having fun. It's no big deal. We're just being silly. And I said, well, I would need gloves. And then, ploop, they plopped down, uh, <laughs> Nathaniel Bryant plopped down a thing of gloves uh, that were exactly the right size. I don't know how, why they had those, but they had them. And I said, well, I'd have to have lube, too. And then, bloop, yeah, Nathaniel <laughs> Bryant plopped down lube. I don't know if they had planned on this or they just had that stuff laying around. Let's just hope and uh, so there was no getting out of it. So I did a prostate exam on Pat Duffy. That became my bet. Every time I'd go up there, I had to do a prostate exam on somebody else. I did one on Roland Campos, who was the oh, wow. booker. Yeah. I did one on Big A. And then my piece de resistance was uh, doing it on Tippy Tom, who was a homeless guy. Oh. And uh, he actually, uh, I proclaimed him the healthiest guy in the studio after I did the physical exam on him. And then he puked uh, all over the place in the, in the uh, carpet outside the studio. And then he was dead a year late. So, I mean, we get, you know, it, it, yeah, healthiest guy in the studio. That shows my prognostic skills. Either that or all but, those other three or four guys are in trouble. Yeah, well, what ha- he just got drunk and fell and hit his head. It wasn't anything oh. that I could have predicted, but um, but anyway, so uh, yeah, so my first appearance went okay, and uh, they were pretty happy with it. And then that the Saturday night, and I got no sleep that night. That Saturday night, we had to do our show, and we were uh, sharing the three hour time slot with a guy named Big Kev who did Big Kev's geek stuff. So we went out to eat. We go up there, and Anthony Cumia is standing there. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? And he says, I'm here to watch you do your show. (laughs) So I had to do my very first show that I'd ever done was on satellite radio. At that time, they were getting about 100,000 listeners on Saturday night, sitting in Anthony's chair with Anthony Cumia watching me. It was extremely nerve-wracking. The good news was... We got such a great response that the the phone lines were absolutely full. We had to bump the one guest that we had because we had to take phone calls. All those 25 topics that I had prepared, I think we got to two of them, and they said, look, you got to quit doing topics. you got to start taking phone calls. Wow. And that 90 minutes went so fast, and when it was over, Anthony came up to us and said, that's the best first show I've ever heard in my life, and that made us very happy. So that's kind of the how we got started. And then we've been on since 2005. So as it is right now, we are the longest running show on that channel, including the Opie and Anthony show wow. <laughs> this year. This year, we actually eclipsed them as far as time on the air. Wow. So, so crazy. What were your thoughts whenever Anthony was fired? Oh, I was uh, crestfallen. 
<laughs> I, at yeah. first, I thought it couldn't be real because they put out this thing and said, after careful consideration, there's no way that there was any careful consideration because right. it happened that weekend. And uh, they fired him over the weekend on a holiday weekend. You know, look, Anthony's got his issues with social media and uh, it's gotten him in trouble more than once. He got banned from Twitter, but he likes to do it. And in the old days, before Twitter, you would have gone home and drunk a bunch of beers, kicked some furniture around and cursed, you know, called one of your friends and and told them the story. And nobody would have known anything about it. The problem was going Twitter and, um, you know, some of the things that he said were, you know, in the heat of the moment. And I, I, he said since then that he's regretted saying those things. So. Right. There were things that were said on the show that were way more risque than those tweets. It was like, are you oh, even oh. listening to the product that's on your network? Right. What? The difference is you have to have a subscription to hear those things, and people didn't complain about those things. And people were complaining, apparently, about uh, his tweets, and they kind of went viral. And (laughs) the next thing they knew, it was it was landing on the uh, big boss's desk, and they were just like, "Fuck this!" Yeah, you know, that's basically what they said: is just fuck this. And Ope's theory is that they were gunning for them anyway because they were expensive. And uh, that um, since Howard had signed for another five years, they they weren't as uh, as um, a valuable commodity as they initially, you know, they they had them there as um, an insurance policy against Howard ever walking out, or at least partially so. And uh, so I, that's that's one hypothesis. Heck, I don't know. I don't have any insider information about that stuff at all. After the firing, you know, we heard a lot about on the air. You could hear the tension between Opie and Anthony and back and forth. And as a listener, I couldn't hear any of that when I was listening. I knew nothing you that was Opie going and Jimmy, on. You mean? Well, well, even back when Anthony left the show, him and Opie were just oh. kind of back and forth. Was Did you pick up any, on any of that while okay. you were there? I only knew about it from what was said to me behind the scenes that, you know, I'm not at liberty to repeat. Right. No, but that's fine. That's the only way I knew about it, because I would listen and say, what are they talking about? <laughs> because, you know, things would be said, and then, but I would never hear it. They were, they were really, really good after 20 years of doing that, right. of uh, just doing their show. But yeah. you could... You know, uh, when those guys who used to live together don't hang out together anymore, right? and then as soon as the show was over, they would all go their separate ways and not even speak to each other until the show started the next day, unless they had a meeting to go to. You kind of knew. It was always funny when they would talk about Scott and Todd. And looking back on it now, if you listen to some of those old Jocktobers, the whole time they're living exactly what they're talking about with Scott and Todd. Yeah, and except no one... they were hiding it way, right. way, way better. And they were actually funny. Exactly. (laughs) You know, a lot of these morning zoos, uh, you know, will make these sort of jokes and then they'll just laugh outrageously at at things. And the thing I always liked about O&A was they didn't fake laugh. If it was funny, they would laugh. If it wasn't funny, they bombed. And then they would, they would uh, go over in great detail (laughs) how the person bombed and why. Right. And that you don't hear that very often on these morning zoos. Another one that I think, another radio show that I think, at least back when I used to listen to them, which was uh, 14 years ago, was Bob and Tom. They were truly funny, and they were really good at having funny people in the studio and uh, allowing the comedians to kind of do their thing and make the show funny. 
do you still talk to opening or opie oh. <laughs> let me rephrase that opening you, yeah. it's not the first time he's been called opening no. <laughs> and that's funny i mean when you have the words opie and anthony in your head and then you want to just say opie right, right. sometimes he comes out and uh an opium he's been called opium it, it's seriously somebody actually think <laughs> uh, do you still talk with opie I mean, do you think you'll ever get back in radio? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, Ope isn't talking to a lot of his friends. I'll I'll text him periodically, and um, I'll tell you of the of the bunch of of all of them, of uh, the three main players, I hear the most from Jim. I hear quite a bit from Ant, and then some from Ope. But it's very few and far between, and nothing substantive about what's going on. Just saying that he's fine and everything's fine. Uh, and I'm just speculating because I don't know, I have no inside information about any of this. But he always said on the show that he had FU money, and I'm taking him at his, at his word, you know, at face value on that, that he doesn't have to work if he doesn't want to. And he's just waiting for something to, uh, to come up that he wants to do. Like I said, I liked all those guys. So if he could land back into radio, I would definitely listen to his show. Of course. Uh, you mentioned WRLA, and that was in Raleigh. How did you get started? WRAL. Okay. Yeah. Well, you mentioned being a cameraman for them. How did you get started doing that? Well, um, I was a radio, television, motion pictures major at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And when I graduated, I put in an application at WRAL and WDUR and uh, uh, WRDU. And WRAL called me. And um, uh, the guy that hired me had gone, I think if I remember correctly, he'd gone through the program at Chapel Hill too. And so he saw kind of a kindred spirit. And so I started doing the uncle Paul show and, uh, we were doing roses commercials in the morning, in the morning, uh, news. And then what, what, when I hit the weekday day crew, uh, we were doing every Wednesday, mid Atlantic championship wrestling and wide world of wrestling. Now, back then this was owned by the Jim Crockett and they would do two shows. No clue why they did it this way, why they did two different shows, but they did two different shows and they just had a banner on the bleachers and they would just flip it around. One side said <laughs> Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, the other side said Wide World of Wrestling. These, they did this at that time as a loss. These were commercials. These were hour-long commercials that the Crockett Brothers would put on all, 35 different stations around the Southeast, solely designed to get people into the arenas and pay, you know, X number of dollars to right. get into the arena, fill it up and play out all these scenarios that they started on the TV show. So if you watch the TV show every week, you would notice that they would set up these rivalries. You know, Mr. Wrestling, Tim Woods or Paul Jones. Paul Jones was the one. He turned bad. <laughs> and and so he he turned bad and turned against his uh, partner, who would, I think was Mr. Wrestling, Tim Woods, if I remember. I, that part I'm fuzzy about. Right. And then he turned against him and then was, you know, wrestling with the heels. And then uh, it was never resolved on the TV show. It was resolved in the arena where he turned around and, you know, threw chalk dust in somebody's eyes, you know, the bad guys, and then just jumped on them and started tag teaming with his old partner. <laughs> that was the greatest stuff, but it was all loss later. So they would pay money on Saturday, late night, Saturday nights to put these shows on on all these different channels. And so since there were 35 different channels, each channel uh, had to have two commercials embedded in the show that say, you know, tonight in Dorton Arena, a Texas chainsaw match with Wahoo McDaniel. And then Wahoo McDaniel would get out there and go, Blackjack Mulligan, if you're listening. And of 
course he'd be listening because he'd be sitting right there. We had to do 70 of these fucking things in a day. Started doing the show, right? So they would um, put these tables down and they would get sandwiches and stuff like that in. And all the wrestlers would sit around the tables. And then um, Gene or Ole Anderson, I can't remember which, or their younger brother, what was his name? Lars Anderson? Maybe, maybe. He, I, he, I think he was their younger brother, but he would say, okay, next up is uh, McDaniel, um, uh, Mulligan, and Rufus R. Jones. And then they'd get up there, and then the announcer say, you know, tonight in Charlotte Coliseum. And then, and then they'd, the guys would come out, and they'd, they'd pump the thing up, you know. Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods, I've got a vendetta against you. And then they'd get, and, and that would get people into the uh, arenas. And we had to do two of those for each channel, 35 channels, 70 commercials. Wow. So there was no room for effing around. It was just, let's go, let's go, let's go. So, of course, they were all just sitting there. They were, they were in business together. Right. And uh, we made a mistake one time of putting this really gorgeous woman in the uh, studio as the camera person because the only person that was in the studio with them other than wrestling personnel was uh, the camera person. It was it created total chaos. They these guys would walk by her and fart or belch or they'd drop their pants and go oops and all this stuff and it just caused chaos. So the rule was we had to put dudes in there in the studio. <laughs> I think we moved her up to be an audio engineer or something. Well, you know so. that that formula. We grew up in Memphis, uh, around Memphis, and we had WMC Five Channel TV Five championship wrestling here in memphis and yeah. i actually ended up wrestling on the memphis circuit for about 10 years and we would do tv oh, wow. and stuff i was never big trust me uh i was just small okay. potatoes i just had a i was a big guy with a bald head and a goatee you know carbon copy sure. of everybody else in wrestling nowadays uh sure. but they still did the same thing their workers didn't get paid for the tv shows you showed up saturday morning you worked for free and yep. you would film two shows a month. One would be live, one would be live to tape. And the only money you made was getting yourself booked off that TV show. Or if they were running a show that month, that's how you got paid. So they were just giving you right. an opportunity. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, crazy. That's still going on because, you know, they, they make money off of Raw and all these uh, events on TV now. Definitely. And that was a real, I think, revelation for them was, wow, you know, we don't have to pay to put these shows on TV. People will pay us right. for our content. And that changed the whole thing. That's when the super rich Vince McMahons and all yeah. that kind of stuff started happening, I think. Now, when you so, were in the back, that was around the 70s, 80s? Yeah, so our, our group was Ric Flair, Mr. Wrestling Tim Woods, uh, Blackjack Mulligan, Rufus R. Jones, uh, Igor, Polish Prince, Baron Von Raschke, wow. um, uh, Ricky Steamboat, Wahoo McDaniel. Did I say Blackjack Mulligan? Yeah, Blackjack yeah. Mulligan. But, I mean, that's an all-star cast. If you follow wrestling, you know pretty much oh. all those names. All the Greg Valentine. Greg oh, Valentine wow. was the one, yeah. Now, and Greg Valentine used to get the hate mail. He got so much hate mail, and there was this guy, and, and they would put the letters out on this piano right outside the studio. There was a piano out there that Uncle Paul would play, and they would just lay all the fan mail out there, and we would read Greg Valentine's mail, and this guy would write, you damn dirty rotten, and every single word is spelled wrong. It'd be D A M U R T Y R O T T O N. That was so funny. God, I wish I'd kept some of that stuff. The business was very protected for so long. They didn't let anybody in the business know that it was a work. 
did anybody try to protect it around you or threaten you or say no. you better not tell anybody no. this or that? No, not wow. at all. Not at all. Wow. Um, it, it was known that the outcome was a, a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't think it was a secret. Even wow. back then, they just you just didn't talk about it. I mean, I, if I'd gone on TV or on a radio show and said, yeah, wrestling's fake, that would have been a problem because wrestling isn't fake. No. <laughs> it may be scripted, and the outcome is for you know is uh, known ahead of time, so it's not a sport in that sense. But it is not fake because those guys are really putting their uh, bodies and uh, on the line and getting injured and the whole thing. You know, I watched a guy jump off of, um, of one of the turnbuckles one time and just miss the jump a little bit and hit his forehead right on uh-huh. a camera and just opened his forehead up. So that there's nothing fake about that. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't remember. We just kind of knew that it was entertainment and uh because it was we knew it was entertainment we didn't didn't think to speak about it right and usually when people tell me you know when i say i used to be a professional wrestler they say isn't all that stuff fake and i was like i wish it was and then i show them all yeah. the scars from the surgeries that i've had like the back surgery the ankle surgery the sure. knee surgery after 10 years and not making any money i was just like nope done with this i want to carry my daughter uh, i want to yeah. be able to pick her up and then like i said i had my first right. back surgery and I was like, I'm done. Yeah, it's the opposite of fake. Yeah. But it, if if, um, if someone thought that it was a real sport, that the outcome was not known ahead of time, then I guess that's where that term started you know, right. coming from. It's, right. But it is, right. no, it's entertainment. <laughs> and it's very entertaining. Oh, yeah. And they got to keep coming up with new crap all the time. I loved the one back uh, quite a few years ago where uh, Vince McMahon got into his uh, – um, it is, uh, and then he had to come out like two, two, three days later and say, I'm alive. Benoit killed his family. I'm sorry. Yeah. That work could have gone on for quite a while. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have any, any good rib stories from your time working around wrestlers, you know, seeing them play practical jokes on anybody or. Well, no, but I, I'll tell you my favorite story. I told this on my show recently, but I'm sure none of your listeners have ever heard my show. So we only have like was, seven, so don't worry about it. It's fine. Okay. Well, my, my, my favorite wrestler story is, um, the time I met Brute Bernard. And when I was a kid, uh, in in Michigan, I used to see him on this little 13-inch black-and-white TV. And I, if, you, if you don't know who Brute Bernard is, uh, I can't remember his partner's name. It was Skull something. Um, maybe you guys. Skull Murphy? Maybe it was Skull Murphy. I, I don't know. I don't know. I was I was a kid. And I just remember he would get out there and go, Hey, you, we're coming after you, and we're going to get you in the ring. And, and, and Wahoo McDaniel, or um, sorry, uh, Brute Bernard would just be pacing in circles behind him. And every once in a while, he would let out this animalistic sort of noise, right? But he would right. never speak. And you just thought he was just a monster. And I remember seeing him wrestle one time. He bit some guy's hand and some sort of fluid went spraying everywhere. I don't know if it was spit or what in the heck it was, but it terrified me. I had nightmares about it. So, uh, when I got into wrestling, um, you know, I was, that was never far from my mind was this whole brute Bernard thing. And one day they hired him to come and, and wrestle with us just as a special occasion. I don't know what the deal was. Every once in a while we would get somebody from outside. Uh, we've got, um, uh, uh, Andre, the giant ones, 
the other guy that just died not too long ago with the curly blonde hair. What was his name? Well, uh, Dusty Rhodes. A lot of them. Dusty Rhodes. We got Dusty Rhodes once. Dusty Rhodes. Yeah. And, and then we got um, Brute Bernard, right? And so uh, I was really kind of freaked out, and I knew, you know, I've been in wrestling long enough to know he probably wasn't really like that, but I was really interested to see what he was really like after him terrifying and you know being a part of my nightmares through my childhood. Uh, so I'm standing outside the uh, dressing room, which was at the bottom of these stairs. So the dressing room was up these metal stairs, and you'd come down, and you'd take a right and go through these big metal doors into the studio. And here's at the top of the stairs is Brute Bernard, and he's walking down the stairs. He had these big, thick reading glasses on and a silk um, smoking jacket with a cigarette in a in a holder. And he was reading a copy of the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> like, oh my God. And I, I don't remember if I said anything to him. In my head, I sort of remember because remember, this was in the 70s. This is a long time ago, 30, 40 years ago. And I re- sort of remember saying, you know, hello, Mr. Bernard, great to meet you. And he's like, hey, kid, or something like that, you know. And uh, all of those sort of nightmarish images just melted away. But what a sweet guy. And he was just cool. And like they all were, they were all pretty cool. You know, uh, Rick right. Flair was always a, a real gentleman to us and in the crew. And, you know, he, he, they were just cool guys. Now, you've told me your wrestling story. I'd like to tell you a medical story that I heard. And this might be okay. legend, folklore, whatever. But this might be the craziest story I've ever heard. When we were like 13, 14, we used to go to the local skating rink. And we didn't live in a bad neighborhood. But just for extra security, they would bring in like a sheriff's deputy or a police officer to do security. Well, okay. he would always gather us around, gather around. We're going to talk boy stuff. We're going to talk guy stuff. And he would tell these horrific stories that he had seen. Well, one day he was telling us this story about how this guy, he used to take a phone cord and cut the terminal end off the phone cord. And he was taking the phone cord and shoving it down into the end of his penis, like all the way down as far as he could. Uh He said he was getting his jollies. And then when he get to the moment that he was ready to go, he would rip the phone cord out. And yeah. he, said, he said, I don't know what he was getting out of it, but one day he uh-huh. shoved it down, went to rip, and it wouldn't uh-huh. come. So uh-huh. he said he, he goes to the doctor and he's like, he goes to the ER and he goes, uh, I need to see a male nurse or a male doctor. And they say, tell yep. us what's wrong. I need to see a male doctor. So they get a male doctor back there. He shows him. And By the says, way, when they say that, they immediately know what's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> so he says, I need to see a male doctor. The male doctor comes and he says he shows him. And he said the male doctor's response was, first off, why? And second right. off, okay, you know, we're going to have to do something here. So he said the only way to do this was they had to basically take it like a hot dog and cut it right down the middle and get the phone cord out that way. Now, here's two questions. Here's my question off of that. One, is this just a folklore story that you might have heard before? And two, could that be true? Is is there something to that on both accounts? Could somebody be getting anything out of that for one? And two, yeah, I mean. That that part I can answer. Uh, There is a fetish called uh, urethral sounding where people will, um, and the reason it's called sounding is, if you know the term sounding in, uh, I guess it's a nautical term where you drop a, uh, like a bar or something that's marked off with yeah. uh, the, the fathoms on it and you can see how deep you are. It's called sounding. And uh, so you can sound um, a uterus. You can sound a urethra by taking a, a metal bar and sticking it in the penis. 
and then see how deep it goes. Why? I mean, the urologists do these things. Right. And uh, so when you shove something in, they'll call it sounding. And people a lot of times use paper clips, and then they go, whoops, oh, and they lose them. God. Oh, but, uh, yeah, this one doesn't sound that unusual. What probably happened was when he got it in there, he shoved it in too far, and then it nodded on the end, and they couldn't pull it back out again. I don't think cutting his penis in half and getting it out that way is necessarily the way they would do it. So I'd love to get a urologist. Sometimes they can just go in and dilate the uh, ure- the urethra itself. Mm-hmm. You know, pass something along along that cord if it wasn't so big that they could still stretch it out and then work on it that way. Uh, and uh, with cystoscopy, you could go in and you might even be able to untie the stupid thing. I don't know. I mean, we'd have to ask a urologist that. Uh, I've I have been in surgery with urologists when they've gotten foreign bodies out of uh, bladders before, and um, they always used a cystoscope to do it. And I've never seen them have to make that kind of incision. Now, and the other kind of incision they could make would be above the pubic bone. They would let the bladder fill up and then they can go above the pubic bone and they could put some, you know, and actually thread that thing out that way, you know, grab it, go in and grab it. Because they'd be going in through the bladder, right? Right. Uh, uh, through the top of the bladder and grab it and then pull it out through the penis. That would, seems to me would be a better way to do it than actually slicing open the penis. And I don't know what that would serve, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah, I, I don't know what he was trying to scare us straight from, but I, I wasn't going to do that anyways. But thanks, yeah, Officer don't Brown. Don't like for it. Your urethral meatus, that's a.k.a. the cock hole. So. Uh, yeah, geez. All right, so I know you don't have a lot of time. We've already held you past, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask this one question, and it is medical-related, and it does affect all of us uh, in one shape or form in some time in our lives, unfortunately, Uh, and it deals with your line of work. Uh, A couple years back, they were talking about on Opie and Anthony cancer research and cures, and you had brought up, and I think this might have been four years ago, you had brought up a research that they were doing where they were taking out white blood cells and somehow showing the white blood cells that cancer cells were bad and injecting back into the host. I don't know if you remember that at all. And the white blood cells were attacking the cancer a little bit then. There was some research saying that that might be promising. Is there anything like that now going on that... Oh, I bet, I bet we lost him. Hello, you with us? Yeah. Hey, I'm sorry, sorry about that. No, 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 I don't know what now, happened. Uh, my computer just restarted for no reason, so... Um, <laughs> I thought I freaked you guys out so bad that uh, you just shut up, and, <laughs> and then I realized I wasn't connected to you. Oh my God. No, we were sitting here, and I was like going on and on, and I was talking about this last question I was going to ask you, and uh, all of a sudden, it just my phone started ringing. So I don't know what the last thing you heard was. <laughs> no, I just I said the last thing that I heard was me saying the word cockhole. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so um, I'll reset a little bit, and uh, uh, what I was going to say was, um, you know, a couple years back, I guess it was about five or six years ago on Opie and Anthony, but uh, the cancer research, it's yep. faced everybody in some form or shape and one family member or another. Uh, a couple years back, I was listening to Opie and Anthony, and I heard a segment you did where you were talking about some cancer research they were doing, where they were removing white yep. blood cells, showing it to the cancer, yes. and then reinjecting it. Uh, I never got a follow up on that. Is there still something going on with that? Is it hopeful? Or- oh my God! Yes. No. We are on the verge of 
finding a generalizable treatment for cancer. And one of the problems with cancer is it's not just one thing. It's a different disease. Um, you know, lung cancer, even non-small cell lung cancer is a different disease than small cell lung cancer. And we treat them differently. And, and what we're looking for is a generalizable treatment for all forms of cancer. And we're getting close. I used to say it was 100 years away. Then I was saying 50 and then 25. And now we're, we're, we're on the verge. And there's research being done all the time. If you're interested in this at all, you can go to a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And then you can put in, uh, you know, viral uh, oncolytic therapy. That's where they use viruses to kill cancer. And the, the, the viruses actually don't kill the cancer. They infect the cancer cells. And then the body kills the cancer. Uh, and then uh, immunotherapy, that's the big thing. So you can go to my website at drsteve.com and click on the right. In the upper right, it says resources, and there's a thing that says, no, sorry, uh, that on the right it says articles, and it says non-pseudoscience cancer cures. And I have uh, several articles about people who were stage four cancers, so that's, that's the, where it's already spread. Uh, who are walking around today cancer-free because of immunological treatments. And so we're getting there. These So far, you know, there have been few and far between because they're doing them in the lab under experimental situations, but it's going to hit the clinic pretty soon. And all of our oncologists who are now given chemotherapy are all going to end up being immunologists. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's definitely happening. That is awesome because, like I said, everybody knows somebody that is affected with cancer, and it's like yes. you watch them go through chemo. I've watched an aunt, I've watched an uncle, and I've watched a grandfather go through it, and uh, two of the yep. three didn't win their battles with it. And the chemotherapy right. was just as bad as bad as the actual cancer was. Well, it can be. They're getting better at it, and it's definitely more tolerable than it was when I was a kid, which is when they you heard chemotherapy. Right. You knew people are going to be puking every day until they died, basically. But that's not the case anymore. And uh, it still happens. And there's still adverse reactions. And, you know, you're trying to kill living human cells inside a living human body. And uh, a lot of the chemo is like throwing a smart bomb uh, in the middle of Baghdad. You're going to get casualties, collateral damage. And the collateral damage are the nearby cells and other cells that you're trying not to target, but get targeted anyway. And uh, that's where the adverse effects come from. So the cool thing about the immune system doing this is if you do it correctly and the immune system targets only the cancer cells, it can go in and kill each tumor cell by cell, molecule by molecule, leaving all the normal cells alone. And it's wow. beautiful when it, when it happens. Yeah, and correctly. I don't know if I explained it right. Is that kind of, did I kind of catch the, yeah. the essence of it? I've talked to people at yep. parties and friends that are going through this, and I'm like, I don't know how they're doing it, but they're somehow showing the white blood cells in the immune system that the cancer's bad. And then right. I wouldn't know anything of what I was talking about from there. So I didn't know if well, I said it right. Neither does anybody else except for the researchers that are doing it. So you captured it pretty well. Just think about it this way. If you've got a serial killer who lives in your neighborhood and every day you drive by and he's out there mowing his lawn and waves at you and everything, you think everything's fine. And then, you know, it's not until some, somebody escapes from the dungeon in the basement and then you open up the house and they, you know, the villagers show up with the torches to, you know, to take care of this, right. that anybody does anything about it. And it's the same way with the, uh, with cancer cells. 
they will, the immune system will just kind of go by and wave at them. And then when you can demonstrate to the immune system that these cancer cells have proteins in them that are identifiable, that identify them as being other, then they'll go in and just kill them. You know, that, that's the equivalent of the, the uh, villagers with the torches. So, uh, and, and, and that's one way to do it is to take tumor out and take killer uh, white cells out get them to meet each other and and agitate those tumor cells until the white cells see a protein that they can identify and kill them and then send those pro, those uh, T cells back in to kill the rest of the cancer cells. And uh, they'll divide and teach each other how to do it. That's the cool thing. Awesome. So that's one way. Another thing uh, that, that I'm really interested in is for melanoma, there's a thing called the abscopal effect. And this is an effect where uh, people say will have uh, metastatic melanoma to their hip and they get radiation for the pain. And then a month later, all their cancer's gone. And what's happening is when they hit them with the radiation, they're hitting a big block of tumor and it's dying. And some protein in those dying cells is being recognized by the, the immune system and then going and killing all the other tumor cells. So they're like, oh, aha, you know, you're not supposed to be here. And then they go kill all the other cells. And I've got a couple articles about that on my website, too. So we know it happens. We don't know how to make it happen. And once we figure out how to make it happen, malignant melanoma will be a thing of the past. Wow, that's so awesome. It, it's coming. You know, they're doing research on it. There's money being spent on it. And uh, uh, it's going to happen. Well, so, what do you a, think the biggest hurdles are for cancer research? Just generally speaking well because it's so unbelievably complicated again you're trying to kill living human cells inside a living human body so if i if you had an untrained eye if i took a slice of cancer cells and a slice of other cells and showed them to you under microscope you probably would be you might be able to tell well there's some difference the nuclei look a little different but that's about it and just imagine just these sending these cells in to blindly go and find those or sending chemicals in to blindly kill those and not kill anything else. It's just, it's very difficult and there's always unintended consequences. You know, when you have the immune system, when you set it on fire, uh, what's to keep it from going and killing all the other good cells in your liver, you know? So, so there's just, you, it has to be done exactly right with no margin for error and it is um, just, um, you know, the, the human body is unbelievably complex. Just the number of chemical processes that are going on in just a single cell every second of the day is mind-boggling. It's just a horrible disease. And it's if yeah. there's anything I can ever do locally for, like, benefits, I do it. Uh, there's two diseases that sure. I always try to hit up. It's cancer and diabetes. Uh, and, yep, and Alzheimer's, that's the one. Yes, that's another um, one. Alzheimer's almost worse in some ways because it destroys the person's personality. I don't know if you follow the CTE thing, speaking of Alzheimer's. We had a list of CTE questions we were going to ask, but um, what you thought about, you know, in wrestling, you know, you had the Benoit tragedy, you know, right after McMahon yep. did his angle, Benoit. I want to say I saw a thing where they did a study where he had – so much significant trauma to his brain that they likened it to a 70-year-old man's brain. 
Did he get that from wrestling, though, or was he a football player no, before? No, he was a wrestler all the time, but he had like seven okay. or eight concussions. And I know when I was a kid, we watched a match where this guy did this top rope flip move and landed right on his head. And, you know, oh. you start watching it. One of his finishing moves was the diving headbutt. Well, that's what I was going to say. His finisher was the, the diving headbutt, and they said he would knock himself out uh, while he was training to be a wrestler just trying to do that. Oh, my move. goodness. So okay. He, yeah, I know nothing about Chris Benoit's situation at all, but uh, right. um, yeah, CTE is uh, it's one of those things that, you know, my kids aren't playing football, I'll right. tell you that. And yeah. uh, you can say whatever you want about me as a parent for not putting my, you know, so I'm a wimp or whatever, but, uh, you know, they're uh, doing uh, cross country. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can totally relate because my son, he's getting to the age to where he's wanting to do something physical, whether it be football. He's really asked me, I, I want to do boxing, Dad. I really want to. And I hate to tell him every time I shoot it down just because I said it's there's no sense in getting, you know, hitting the head whenever you don't have to. Right. Uh, that's the way I look at it. Yeah, he could maybe do, you know, some of the martial arts, the sparring stuff those people really don't get hurt. You're going for points. You're not going for knockouts. Right. right. Do you think stem cell research could be beneficial for people suffering from CTE? I sure hope so. And uh, I, I don't have any specific knowledge about that to mess with you. Um, if I'd known you were going to ask me that, I would have done some research <laughs> on it before before I called in. But, uh, you know, yeah, stem cells um, are, are just basically pluripotent cells. They can become anything. And uh, the neurologic system, particularly the central nervous system, is the one of the last frontiers in medicine. Immunology and neurology, those are the two big ones. Is Once we harness those, when someone breaks their neck and severs their spinal cord, when we can put it back together and they can walk again, uh, uh, then, then we will have really done something. But, you know, we just don't understand how it works yet. Well, hell, we don't know how consciousness works. How is it that we're even talking <laughs> yeah. to each other? on electronic devices that human beings invented because they were smart enough to figure this out over, you know, 4,000 years of uh, going from, oh, look, the moon looks the same today as it did 28 days ago to where we are right now where we're talking to each other through, you know, this vast computer complex. And, uh, and we still are having difficulty uh, understanding how consciousness works. We have no clue, even what it is. And therefore, if we don't understand what it is or how it works, it's going to be hard for us to learn how to fix it. But once we do, we'll be on the road. Now, that I still think is 100 years away. Uh, so do you, do you buy into that theory that in a couple of years' time or 10 years' time that we will be able to download our consciousness in a computer and live forever? By, as I a sure machine? hope so. Yeah. <laughs> With my luck, it'll happen the day after I croak. Right. <laughs> but these well, people that are going to upload their their um, brains into machines, I think they're going to be sorely disappointed right. by their the kind of existence that they have in a machine. But I've read a couple of books, uh, you know, science fiction books about this. And then if you're interested in that at all, just Google uh, Ray Kurzweil because that's his thing. Okay. He's trying to stay alive long enough so that he can upload his brain into a computer chip and live forever. I remembered somebody said something about that on ONA, talking about how they thought the next generation would live to be a hundred and something years old, maybe never die, blah, 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 blah. And Anthony just goes, oh, meat rots. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. That's right. No, I, I do believe that our children that go to the stars will be machines. That was that was my um, 
theory a couple of weeks ago uh, where I said, Josh, I think teleportation won't actually be us breaking ourselves down. We'll just be sending our mental waves to a host on the other end. Oh, and uh, I think that uh, that's an interesting idea. I think that one's been uh, explored in science fiction as well because that's, you know, you can either have a wormhole that you walk through, so you walk through, or you deconstruct yourself on one end and then construct yourself on the other, which ends up having all kinds of crazy ethical stuff. Because right. what if I just don't construct you on the other end? Well, did I commit murder? Well, right. as soon as we go to trial, right. I just go click, and here you are. Well, I didn't commit murder. Here he is. <laughs> and then uh, the other thing that you can do if you're doing that, why can't I make a, a million copies of myself? To be fair, I was just messed up oh. and watched Avatar, so I think that might have been... <laughs> 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 yeah, well, okay, but well, that's not a bad idea either. And uh, so, yeah, to uh, upload your... Con- if you can upload your consciousness to a, um, a machine, obviously you can encode that in some sort of electromagnetic wave and send it somewhere to a machine instead of just doing a direct link up, right? It's got to right. be. Uh, to me, it seems more plausible than breaking yourself down and sending physical matter through the air. If you could just send consciousness from one place to a next. Agreed. If you do that, then is that me on the other end? Because what if... I beam my consciousness, but I don't destroy myself on this side. Now I've got this other person that has all of my memories that says, I was on Earth and now I'm on Mars and I'm walking around. But here I am on Earth saying, I was on Earth and I'm still on Earth and I beamed my consciousness to Mars. Now you've got two people. Now their experiences start to diverge, but they both think they're me. And again, you could, if you're going to do that once, you could do it a million times and make a million copies of me. Yeah, and you'd almost have to have something that would wipe the hard drive clean as soon as you got out of that host body. Like right. You don't, you don't right. Want so you would have to do that just to keep that from happening. Right. But that's the only reason it would happen was you'd say, well, I'm going to kill myself just so that I can only have one copy of me. But then, you know, what if it doesn't work exactly right? right. There is a book called I Am Legion. It's a science fiction book about a guy that uh, got his consciousness put into uh, uh, machines that could then reproduce themselves. And then they shot him into space to colonize other worlds. And so now there's like a million copies of him running around in these uh, spaceships. And he can modify uh, his, his machinery so that he can be primarily a spaceship or primarily a machine that makes other copies of himself and stuff like that. It's really kind of interesting. Well, it's kind of like that thing that I was watching or I heard about on XM. I think maybe uh, Ron and Fez were talking about it where they had these two computers that were talking to each other. And then like within oh, minutes... Yeah. They started talking in a language that no one knew, so they freaked out and right. the plug. Right. Now, the language was really simplistic, and it, it, what they were basically trying to do were the two machines were trying to negotiate how they were going to pass traffic through the network. And it would say, I, me, 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 one, 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 three, three. And, but they had, con- they had come up with this between the two of them, and they agreed on it and were using it. And it wasn't... It wasn't a real complex language or anything, but they were like, oh, shit, these two machines have created their own way of communicating, and we didn't do this, so we're going to turn it off. So One of these days, the, the person isn't going to turn it off, and then God knows what's going to happen. So do you think we are at risk for a uh, robot apocalypse? Freaking Skynet. Have you seen the video of the robot that can uh, jump and yes. do flips in the air? Yes. I've seen that now, one. If that thing had a, if that th- yes, and the dog is terrifying as yes. well. <laughs> if that thing had um, unlimited power, which we don't have, 
Right. You know, unlimited power and intelligence. We are screwed <laughs> if it decides that it doesn't like us anymore. And it may just disregard us altogether because, you know, their purposes and ours could be totally different. Or we could have some that we program that are friendly to us and others that, you know, are not. Who knows? You know, it is it is a little bit disconcerting, but we're quite a few years away from that. And the biggest thing that reassures me on this particular topic is I can't even get my stupid cell phone to keep a charge all day long. <laughs> right. Much less some giant machine that's going to run around and try to kill me. So I think we're okay in that regard. You know, I always think of that Saturday Night Live skit where it was like Sam Watterson was selling life insurance to old people that were afraid that robots were going to rise up and kill them. I haven't always, seen that. Yeah, I always think about that. The was like, Are you afraid of the inevitable robot invasion? Oh. <laughs> and it just has these like things that look like the Jetsons Judy. Was it Trudy? Judy? Judy. Judy was the dog. Yeah, just busting in with their hook hands and choking elderly people. And <laughs> it's it's a nightmare, really. I mean, just to think about something a, like that actually happened. A great movie from the seventies. That I, I, I'm wondering if it still holds up. It was called Colossus the Forbin Project. And that's what it's about is an artificial intelligence taking over the world. And uh, the guy tried to write it from a computer science standpoint with what they knew at the time. I think it was written in the early 70s. And uh, I, I remember being horrified by it. And the machine never becomes autonomous in the sense that there were robots running around. It didn't need them. You know, it was just got into the computer network and took over. So that's, uh, I'm going to go watch that movie and see if it's still good, and I'll, I'll report back. Do you ever listen to, and I know this is off the topic, but do you ever watch or have you ever heard of a show called Rick and Morty? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they, I can't deal with the grandfather with the saliva all over his face. <laughs> like, dude, wipe your mouth. But, and I know it's just a cartoon, but it drives me crazy. Right. Well, I tell you, they tackle a lot of these issues, and you know, they do time travel and stuff like that. And some of it's pretty sure. interesting. The, but, I watched the first few, and they were really, really funny. And I just right. got frustrated. I get frustrated with um, <laughs> substance abuse when people aren't willing to take care of us. Right. And so there's shows like what, uh, uh, Shameless. I can't watch that. Right. And there are other ones where people are just wasted and uh, they don't deal with it. And it's just frustrating to me. And, uh, you know, I know it's a cartoon, but I've just had issues wanting to watch a whole bunch of them because of that. But it is funny. It's very clever. And I'm just an old namby-pamby for even <laughs> raising that as an issue on that particular show. I know I am. And, but then again, you see it affect people every day. Like one of my favorite That's things true. on Opie and Anthony, in which they talked about it recently, was Lady Di. You yep. can see kind of what happened to her, and I don't want to get into it too much, but you could see what happened to her just because she was in denial of having right. a problem. Well, she used to call my show, too, and we got to where we said, are you calling from rehab? And she said no, and we'd go click, and we'd just hang up on her. And it was kind of a funny bit, and we I have my lady Di, her name is Diana as well, and she's tall and blonde and beautiful and has a good job, and you know, this, this, we called her the alternate universe lady Di <laughs> and all these things. But then when Diane um, ended up in you know in the nursing home demented, it wasn't funny anymore, right. so you know, stopped making fun of her, and right. you know, now right. we just call our lady Di, you know, lady diagnosis, and 
just kind of moved on. But yeah, it was just really sad because she was really, really funny. There yeah, oh. are some, some of the, my favorite moments on Oakland Anthony were when Lady Di were, were on, particularly when she did her internship. And that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> no, not at all. And I remember... You know, they had somebody to... come in and do a makeover on yes. her and they didn't give her a mirror. <laughs> and they, 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 the woman made her up. She was a, um, a stage makeup artist. And she thought they were doing a, a makeover, and they made her look like a saw from a saw movie. <laughs> <laughs> it was just horrible. I remember y'all were trying to help her, even in the internship, and then yeah. it was nothing more chilling and nothing more scary than that call she'd made to Opie and Jim where she was telling them that she was in the Navy. And yeah. I was like, man, that's just... Well, that was the last time anybody made fun of her. Right. Was that... Now, I don't want to get involved to her medical conditions, but... Yes, okay. Um, was some of that brought on by drinking? Yes. Okay. I think 100% of it was. And there that, is an encephalopathy called Wernicke's encephalopathy. There's also a thing called Korsakoff syndrome. And um, she had uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, I'm quite wow. sure. It, and, you know, that's been talked about on the air. I'm not saying anything. Right, right, right. Is that something that's permanent or? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, uh, I don't see any any hope that that'll get better. You know, barring a miracle, we believe in miracles. I just can't write an order for one. You know, right? But, you know, thiamine will prevent some of it, but some of it is just, um, you know, just bad. It was just, it's just bad, and it's it's just so sad. Her son's a nice guy. He was a a very nice person. Uh, she just couldn't stop herself. And you know, they tried tough love. They tried making fun of her. They tried talking to her and trying to convince her that what she was doing wasn't right and nothing worked. Right. This shows how powerful an addiction it can be. Yeah. I remember right after when Bill died, her roommate, I've yeah, never right. felt so sorry for somebody and laughed so much at yeah. somebody at the same time. It, it, but it was, it was really sad. Yeah, I know. And that's part of the essence of comedy is someone, someone's going to lose. You know, that's right. part of, I've heard that, you know, if, if you do comedy where no one loses, then it's usually not funny. Then you get network sitcoms. Right. And uh, so that, that is the sad thing about yeah. that. She was funny, but everybody knew she was killing herself. Right. You remove yeah. the laugh track from a sitcom and it's a very sad, tragic oh, yeah. situation. Yeah. Yeah. They've done that before on that show. <laughs> and it, it, very, it was very revealing. Yeah. Um, so anyway. I know, like I said, we've, we've talked way past your 30 minutes and I really appreciate you being on with us, man. Uh, I'm a huge fan. We got one last Thank question you. and we'll wrap up. Okay. Uh, it, and it's a simple one, no medical, nothing. It's just, what is some advice you could give to someone on how to be successful at whatever they're trying to do? Now we're trying to do this podcast. You might see up and coming doctors. What's something that you can tell them that you did that would help them? Wow. Um, Wow, that's a tough one. Certainly not giving up is one thing. But, you know, what I tell people when they want to get into a new hobby, this might be something more apropos. Uh, when they want to get into a new hobby, the thing that you do is you go buy the magazines that the people who are already doing the hobby read. and Or, you know, go to the websites where they already go. And um, when you start doing that, you'll start to understand the language. At first, it'll just be gibberish. And then the more and more that you kind of delve into it, the more understanding you'll get. And that's really true of medicine, podcasting, just about anything is learning the language itself and not feeling intimidated just because you don't understand it in the beginning and hanging in there. Because how do kids learn language? Right. They, they're submerged in it for years, and it takes 
you know, a five-year-old has pretty good command of the English language, but a three-year-old doesn't. So it takes three to five years before you're going to get proficient. And, um, you know, when you've done things, what, what's the adage? If you do things for 10,000 hours, you're an expert. Right. And that's how long it takes to do stand-up. That's how long it takes to do medicine. That's how long it takes to do podcasting. You know, I'm still a novice when it comes to podcasting just because I only do two hours a week. Opie and Anthony would do. Well, Opie and Anthony would do four hours a day. Right. You know, and one time we calculated it was a few years ago that um, even after we'd been doing this for I can't remember nine years, we'd only done actually six months of equivalent work that Opie and Anthony did. Wow. Well, Dr. Steve, we appreciate you being on with us, man. Once again, you can hear him Saturday nights, 8 p.m. on Sirius XM 103, our catches show Weird Medicine on the Riotcast Network. Dr. Steve, once again, thank you so much for being a part of this show, and we appreciate your time. Thanks, boys. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Well, the sound of the song means that we have wrapped up another show here at P3 Radio. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. And please check us out on Facebook at Pop Poncho, on Twitter at P3 Radio, and on YouTube and iTunes at P3 Radio. We'd like to thank Dr. Steve and every one of you for listening to the show. Please join us next week for another edition of P3 Radio. But until then, thank you and good night.